to do this morning with the time that we have left before we go to our tables. Um, on your sheet there, you've got Jonah, the book of Jonah. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So you can, uh, most of the scripture we're going to look at is right there on your sheet, but if you have a Bible, get that out as well. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father, we love you. We pray, God, that you would speak to us. Um, we recognize that we are um, like the Pharisees. We also recognize we're like Jonah. We need to be redeemed, and we need your invitation, your gracious invitation to turn from our sin and to turn to you to repent. So, Lord, we pray by your Spirit that you would empower us to repentance this morning, and that as we leave this place, we would sense a greater power of the gospel, of the resurrection of your Son, who gives us the ability to truly repent. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark mentioned this in a sermon um, about a month ago. It was around the time of Reformation. If you were there, you heard him say this. If you weren't there, maybe you've heard this before. Uh, but it's a, quite a famous idea, and that's uh, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. And the very first of the 95 Theses said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So I want you to put yourself in Martin Luther's shoes in the midst, not even the midst, the, the beginning, the infancy of the Reformation. All that's going on in terms of what justification means and doesn't mean. Uh, the indulgences of the Catholic Church and the injustice that he saw and what he felt like he had to do in putting these 95 theses to the door. And that you know, has been, for, for many, the beginning Right, the beginning of the Reformation, and the very first thing that Martin Luther said was that the entire life of the believer is to be one of repentance. It's important for Luther because it was important for Jesus. Jesus Christ, as he began his ministry, and as he began to preach, he began to call men and women to repent. Okay, I'm just going to give you a sampling of this. Anyone who would listen, Jesus would preach, repent. Matthew 3, 2, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, from that, that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew eleven twenty, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Mark 1, 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And believe in the gospel. Luke 5, 32, I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 13, 3, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish. Repentance was important to Luther because repentance was important to Jesus. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that we don't always have a very clear understanding of what repentance actually is. And I would argue, because I think that's what Jesus is arguing, that repentance is vitally important to who you are as a believer and ultimately who you are as a human being. It is essential that we understand what it means to repent. 
And perhaps one of my favorite places in the Gospels where Jesus talks about repentance is in Matthew 12. It's on your sheet on the back. I'm going to read it. The Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus, right? Remember, they are proud of their own morality. The Pharisees were proud of their good works. If you would have asked the Pharisees, do you think that you're repentant? They would have given you a resounding yes. We are more repentant than anyone else. We are the definition of repentance. Look repentance up in the dictionary. You're going to see my picture, right? I am a walking display of repentance. That's what a Pharisee would tell you. And they're coming to Jesus, verse 38, and they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, Jesus, do something for us to help us understand who you really are. Prove yourself, Jesus. Verse 39, it says, Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Pharisees, proud of their morality, demand a sign from Jesus, and Jesus says essentially this, you already have been given a sign. And that sign was Jonah spending three days in the belly of the fish, only to come out to preach to Nineveh. And then he goes on and says this, and I want you to catch this. The Ninevites, and we'll get into this more, were evil people. Not only did they not know God, but they violently oppressed the people of God. And yet, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, the people of Nineveh repented, and they are going to be in heaven. If you want a sign, here's your sign. A bunch of evil, violent people repented are going to be in heaven, and they're going to condemn you, Pharisee because you're, you have no clue what repentance really is. So this morning, we're going to look at repentance through the eyes of Jonah. Jesus tells us that there is something greater than Jonah here. And we're going to look at repentance in three ways. And the first way is this, we're going to look at Jonah's repentance. So I want you to look, turn the page over. Jonah 1, 17. If you know the story of Jonah, it's one of my favorites uh, almost every kid knows it, uh, who's grown up in church at least. If you've grown up outside of church, there's a chance you've at least heard of the idea of Jonah and a really big fish, right? It's a captivating story. It's a story of a prophet being commanded by God to go and preach, not to the people of Israel, but to the people of Nineveh. Uh, the Ninevites, were, again, were godless. They did not believe in God, and they were violent people. Uh, their uh, violence and their hatred is well documented in the Old Testament. They did atrocious, evil things to the people of Israel. And so what God was asking Jonah to do was to offer forgiveness and redemption to a bunch of people who have completely desecrated his homeland. So to put yourself in Jonah's shoes, I want you to think of the most evil enemy that America has. And perhaps that would be maybe ISIS today. 
And what is being offered here to Jonah is a command by God to go and to preach forgiveness to that enemy. To offer forgiveness in the name of God to that enemy. That they would turn from their sin and turn to God, turn to Yahweh. Well, Jonah can't stomach the thought. The idea that God would forgive a bunch of evil people. People, not only is Jonah upset because of the way that they treated God, but I think fundamentally, Jonah's upset because of the, the way that they've treated him and his people. I mean, this, this is something that stings in him. There is deep hatred and prejudice and anger in Jonah, and some of that we could say is, is righteous anger. Jonah can't bear the thought that the people of Nineveh would be given a second chance. And so he disobeys God. Jonah, a prophet, called by God, specifically to Nineveh, goes in the opposite direction. He goes to a place called Tarshish, gets on a boat, right? And if you know the story, storm comes, the sailors in the boat start to freak out. They're thinking, what, what is happening here? And suddenly they realize, wait a minute, there's that guy we let on this boat, <laughs> And he's just hanging out down in the, in the bottom, acting like nothing is happening. They bring him up, and they say, you need to call out to your God and stop this. And Jonah says, you know what? You've got to throw me overboard. It's because of me. Just throw me overboard, and let's end this. They throw him overboard. Everything stops. You think that's the end, but it's not the end. And God, verse 17 is where we pick it up. It says, the Lord appeared in a great fish, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What happens in that belly of the fish is incredibly important. You know, it's interesting. I think people get so bent out of shape about this fish. What would have been like to be in the belly of a fish three days? I've talked to countless people who believe every word of the Bible. I mean, seriously, every word of the Bible except for this story. Because it's so hard to fathom. And so here's the challenge for you this morning. In the same amount of faith that it takes to believe in the empty tomb, should we not have the same kind of faith in a fish and Jonah the belly? And here's why. Because if you're, if you're too fixated on what's going on in the belly of the fish, and whether that's possible, you'll miss what Jonah is saying in the belly of the fish. Because those three days in that belly, something is happening inside Jonah that every one of us should strive for, prayerfully and by the power of the Spirit. Jonah's repenting. And we see his repentance in chapter 3. I want you to look with me. It's there on your sheet. What we want to see in Jonah's repentance is this. Repentance is not just behavior change. It includes behavior change, but it begins with heart change. Repentance always begins in the heart, and it exits through action. And we see this kind of heart change begin in Jonah as he spends three days, three nights in the belly of a fish. Now, to get our bearings, we need to understand what repentance is. The word repent, right, um, it's, it's a very important word. 
metanoio. The idea is to turn, and there's two parts to this turning. The idea of changing your mind or to turning away from your sin. But repentance is never just turning away from sin. That's only half of it. Repentance is turning completely around and turning back to God, turning back to Christ. Turning away from your sin and turning towards Christ. And every time when we see the idea of repentance talked about, it always produces change. There's transformation. It begins in the heart, but it exits through the hands and feet. It always produces action. We see this beginning in this heartfelt repentance in verse 5. Notice what Jonah says. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Again, it's beautiful poetry. I also think this probably really happened to him, right? I mean, imagine Jonah flailing about in the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what's going on in Jonah? He recognizes that this fish was a godsend. That when he was thrown overboard, he should have died. He deserved to die. He was disobedient. He found himself flailing about in the deep. And God sent this fish to deliver him. You have this beautiful statement of what salvation really is. It doesn't belong to man. We cannot save ourselves. Look, we are drowning in our sin. But salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who sends redemption after us. And brothers, what I want you to see this morning is you and I, we're like Jonah. We, we directly disobey God every day. And yet God's response to Jonah running away from him is to go after him. It's to send nothing less than a giant fish to swallow him up for his rescue. Do you know that rescue this morning? Do you know what Christ has done for you? That God will never stop chasing after you. Why? Because you're his. If you see that this morning, that should do one thing. As Paul says, it's the kindness of the Lord that should not cause us to take advantage of his grace to say, well, look, God, if you're going to continue to just chase me all the time, I'm going to keep running. But no, that reality that God will never stop until he redeems us should cause us to repent. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. This is what it looked like in Jonah. How did this come out for him? Well, I want you to notice a few things. First, there is a second chance given to Jonah. Notice Jonah 3.1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He didn't have to do that. But God gave Jonah a second chance. God is the God of second chances. It's a repetition of Jonah 
It's not there on your sheet. Just listen. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord already came to him once. Jonah disobeyed. Now it has come a second time. Second, we're seeing that God re-ups his command. He doesn't just send this fish, but he re-ups his command. Look at verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Again, it's a repetition. Jonah 1, 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God is calling Jonah to repent. Jonah, I told you to go to Nineveh and preach. You disobeyed, you were thrown overboard, and now I've sent a fish to rescue you. But I've rescued you not so that you could just go back home and not do what I told you to do. No, I've rescued you so that you would do what I've called you to do. Repent, Jonah. Turn from your sin and obey. Go to Nineveh and preach to that great city. Call out against it with the message that I tell you. And then this is what we see. Jonah repented. Okay? Jonah repented. He was disobedient the first time, the second time he obeys. Look at verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is completely different than what he did verse 1, chapter 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. Again, it's a mirror. It's a repetition. Chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Chapter 3, Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. It doesn't get more specific than that. I don't know what your specific sin is or sins. But repentance is always specific. There is likely something in your life that you need to repent from. Repentance is not just confession. It's not just simply being honest, although that's, a, that's something for us to be, because so often we're not honest, are we, brothers? But it just begins with that. Yes, we must be honest. We must confess our sins. We must bring what is in the darkness into the light, but that's confession. It begins with confession, but it must move to repentance. And repentance always is a specific change of action. And here's the trick, and it gets to our second point, that repentance must be centered on God, not on us. This morning, if you leave this Bible study feeling that you've been given marching orders for something to you, for you to do in your own power, then either I've done a very bad job or you aren't listening very well because I want you to hear this. Repentance is always centered on God. I would put it this way. Repentance is an act of worship. It is not about man-centered moralism. It's never just behavior change. It includes behavior change. But it always begins by recentering ourselves on God. Let me show you what I mean. I want to look at the repentance of Nineveh. Repentance always gives rise to new God-centered, God-worshipping action. All right, so again, I want you to look with me. Chapter 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, 
Nineveh should be overthrown. All right, so Jonah is now preaching the message that God has called him to preach. And as he calls out, notice what happens in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I don't want you to brush past something very important. Notice what it says. The people of Nineveh believed God. Remember who they were. Godless, pagan people. Prone to violence and great wickedness. And the very first thing that happens for them is they believe God. Repentance begins with a reorienting. For some of you this morning, I'm looking around. I know most of you. But it could be that you are somewhere this morning struggling with that right there. What does it mean to believe God? For some of you, you have some inkling of that, a curiosity perhaps, but you're not sure. Others of you have grown up in church all your life, would certainly call yourself a Christian. If I asked you to check a box, you say, of course I do, and yet, if you're going to be honest, you struggle with that too. What does it really mean to believe God, to trust Him and His promises? Not to believe that there is a God, but to believe God. The people of Nineveh, for them to repent, it must begin with belief, with faith. Repentance for us, brothers, it begins with faith, belief. It's a recentering on who God is and what His promises are. The people of Nineveh believed God. Remember, not believed in God. Even the demons can do that. But no, to trust in His promise. They believed God and they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. So first, they believed God. Second, they mourned over their sin. You cannot really repent unless you recognize your sin for what it is. And if you see your sin for what it is, it's going to cause you to mourn. When is the last time that you mourned over your sin? Now, what does it mean to mourn over your sin? Because I could ask it this way. When is the last time you felt guilty? But I'm not talking about that. When is the last time you felt caught? I'm not talking about that either. When is the last time you felt exposed? I'm not talking about that either. The similarity between those three things, being caught, being exposed, guilt, all of that has to do with you. That's very man-centered. But when's the last time you mourned over your sin? To mourn over your sin is God-centered. It's to look up at God, to recognize for who He is, and to look at yourself and to say, what have I done? It's not guilt, it's conviction. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to show you that you've, you've missed it. You've disobeyed God, and yet, in that same breath, God is present with you, and He's with you. And that should cause us to mourn, right? To lament. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They mourned over their sin, Look at verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. And I recognize this dignified man, this man who ordered his people to do atrocious things. This king arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. What an amazing picture. This dignified, powerful man 
recognizing in humility the heinousness of his sin. And he takes off his royal robe and puts on a sackcloth and sits in ashes. When is the last time that you mourn over your sin? This is what he says. The king issues a proclamation, verse 7. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. And then notice this. Let them call out mightily to God. It's not just pity. It's not just sitting in filth. But it's calling out to God. It's worship. To mourn over your sin, I would argue, is an act of worship. It's lament. It's the difference between guilt and conviction. When you feel caught in your sin, when you feel guilty or exposed or shame, you go inward. Like Adam and Eve, you cover yourself, you hide from God. But to mourn over your sin is to do it before the Lord. It's an act of worship. It's to call out to Him, to cry out to Him. It's to really see your sin in light of who God is. Not in light of who you are, who you think you should be, or in light of who other people are, comparing yourself to them, but it's seeing your sin for what it is in light of who God is. And then they turn. It doesn't just stop there. They're not just sitting in ashes crying out to God, but then they change their behavior. They turn from their sin. They turn from evil. It continues, verse 8, let everyone turn. Notice the language. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. So what did repentance look like for the people of Nineveh? They believed God, right? Faith. They mourn over their sin. They lament and worship, seeing God for who He is and their sin for what it is. And then they turn. And notice how specific it is. Let us turn from the violence that's in our hands. Right? It it produced God-empowered action. And so finally, how does all of this happen? Because what we can easily do is hear all of that and say, okay, well, I guess I need to be better. I need to be different. My life doesn't look that way, and so I need to change But what I want you to see is that all of this has to be centered on God and empowered by God. Uh, So often I think we we think about repentance and what it really is is just lip service to our sin and saying, I've got to do better next time. I need to do better next time. I need to do better next time. It's why those of you who grew up in a Baptist church, you know this story, but it's um, so often we've seen this time and time again where it's like, well, I've rededicated my life to the Lord. And then the next year, I've rededicated my life to the Lord and rededicate my life to the Lord. And it's like, man, how many times can you do that? And the truth is, every day, right? If life is one of continual repentance, as Luther says. But the reality is that gets very exhausting, does it not? I think one of the reasons why we struggle with repentance is because we're tired of it. It's exhausting to have to do that day in and day out. Here's what I would say to you. If this morning you find yourself exhausted at the mere thought of repentance, 
exhausted over your sin, I would say two things. One, I hear you, and I feel that too. But the second thing I want to say to you is this, and and I want you to know I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. Don't run from that exhaustion, but press into it, because here's why. If you're exhausted, that tells us one thing. You're doing that out of your own power and not the power that comes from God. You're tired because you're trying too hard. You're tired because you're wearing yourself out. The call to repent from Jesus is an invitation. An invitation not just to turn from your sin, but to return to Him. Why? Because He is the one who gives us the ability to repent. He is the one that gives us the ability to actually turn away from our sin and to walk in newness of life. To return to Him is to return to the cross. And that's where we're going to end this morning. It's interesting. We, We see Jonah's repentance. We see Nineveh's repentance. But lastly, in verse 10, and this almost sounds blasphemous, we see God's repentance. Well, what do I mean by that? How did God repent? I want you to look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. God relented. There are translations that translate this word repent. Now, I want you to know a couple things. First is this. The Hebrew word here is different than it's used elsewhere. It's a different word. That's why probably the translation relent is maybe a little bit better. The reason why I think it's better, though, is not because it's not talking about change. We'll get to that in a second. But why repentant might not be the best word for God is because, well, He doesn't sin, right? And so often we, we, the idea of repentance is turning away from sin. But what I do think is helpful here in the word repentance, if we're going to use that here, is that the idea is that God changed. And that's a struggle for us, especially if you've grown up in a Presbyterian church. Can God change? Can He do that? Can God relent? Notice what it says again. When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil. God relented of disaster. They turned from their evil. God turned from the disaster. What do we do with that? What do we make of God doing that? To explain this, some have said, well, it's like anthropomorphism. You know that word? It's a big word. What it means is, well, it's, you know, God in this moment, we're, just, we're describing Him as if He was a person. He's not. But in order to understand Him, we're going to use kind of human-like language to try to get at what he's, what's happening here. That's one explanation. Maybe you've heard that explanation before. I think there's a better explanation. And here, here's the explanation, and, and I think this is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 12. And this is where we're going to end. I think the better explanation is this. God promised to punish a wicked, evil, godless Nineveh. He did not promise to punish a repentant, worshiping, God-fearing Nineveh. When it says God relented, it's not that He changed. It's that He didn't change. Because for God to be just, 
is yes, to condemn sin, but it's also to hold out mercy to those who are repentant. God's promise was to destroy a wicked Nineveh. Yet that's not who Nineveh is anymore. Nineveh is no longer a wicked, evil, godless people. The people of Nineveh are humble, they're worshipful, they're mournful, and they're God-fearing. And for those people, God has mercy. And so as the Pharisees come to Jesus, proud in their own action, thinking that they're repentant because of what they're doing on the outside, and they demand a sign, Jesus says, I give you Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a disobedient prophet who spent three days in the belly of a fish only to emerge to offer repentance to a wicked people. Jesus was an obedient Savior, a better Jonah who spent three days in a tomb And when he emerged from the tomb triumphant, he empowered you and me to turn from our sin and turn back to God. He is the source of our repentance. He offers mercy to all those who will turn back to him. Like the good father and the prodigal son, his arms are open wide and he's saying, come back. Turn from your sin." And turn back to me. I died for you and I rose again for you. And now the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is now at work in you. Bearing the fruit of repentance in your life as you turn back to the one who has called you his own. Your father who sent the son and the Son who has now given you the Spirit. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, help us to see what is greater here. Our Lord Jesus Christ said that there is something greater than Jonah here. May we see it this morning. Father, reveal to us first, yes, what repentance is, but those ways that we need to repent. And I pray more than anything else that as we discuss and as we leave here, that we would leave encouraged, that we would leave with the gracious invitation to return to you, and that we would leave empowered, knowing that your son Jesus spent three days in a tomb to rise again in order to give us the power of the resurrection, power that bears the fruit of repentance. Lord, may we know that resurrection power this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.